I am going to take us into our reading, which is not all of 6, 1 through 9, 17. <laughs> just going to be reading Genesis 6, verses 5 through 9. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Well, welcome everyone to Regen. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here. And just a couple of quick shout outs. One to the dads in the room. Happy Father's Day. Well done. Keep it up, please. <laughs> Today is also like happy game seven days. Is that something that you say? Are we supposed to be excited about this? I'm not totally sure. Before we get into this, I mean, this has been kind of a heavy week, right? If we're being honest, it's been a heavy week. This is not related to basketball, by the way, just to make that clear. But a heavy week in our country, a heavy week even here in our city. And then with all that going on, I'm supposed to preach about Noah and the flood today. And so I'm just like, ugh, this is like a lot of gnarly things all at the same time. So. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn our attention to the text. Father, this morning we do lift up the dads, both in our community here at Regeneration and just around our city and country and world even, and we just pray for those men who are raising kids that you would be with them and that you would strengthen them to fulfill the high calling of fatherhood. God, we pray for our country and just the continued need for healing and peace to reign. Pray for our city, for many of the same things. And then for us this morning, God, soften our hearts. Help us to be attentive to your word. We probably know something, even if just a very little, about Noah and the flood story. And so, God, I pray that for us this morning, this would be new it would speak to us in a fresh way. We would see it with new eyes and we would be able to recognize your goodness in the text, but also in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis, even in a time when it might feel like it's hard to see that. So we pray all of this this morning in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so Noah and the flood. I got to get this off my chest right out of the gate here. This text is a crazy story. It's a difficult story. It raises a lot of questions. One of the big questions for me about this text is why is this such a popular kid's story? <laughs> There's a number of ways that we do this, that we tell this story to kids. I wanted to share a couple of those with you. Here's one example. This is a very popular way of doing this. I like to call this one Happy Noah, okay? <laughs> Noah is bald, and of course he's white, and he looks like Santa Claus, and he's very happy to be hanging out with his animal friends, okay? <laughs> happy Noah. I don't know if you can see the picture in great detail, but my favorite part of this picture is the hippos. <laughs> I don't know. They're just like the most joyful hippos. That's something about that is great to me. So you got happy Noah, but this is a story that is filled with tension. So here's the second thing. Here's stressed out Noah. 
but it's still cute, right? There's still this like kind of cartoony thing going on there. And we don't really know why he's stressed out. Perhaps it's because he's never seen so much water, being a desert dweller. Maybe he's concerned that his boat isn't going to hold together. But again, there's got to be at least a little bit of tension in the story, even as we tell it to kids. So there's stressed out Noah. Now here's the last one. And I love this one because the caption is, fun learning experience. (laughs) Which to me is sort of the like, that's the central message of this story, the way that we tell it to kids, right? Cute animals plus obedient Noah, plus a big boat, fun learning experience. It's all good. That's sort of one angle. There's another phenomenon with the flood story, though, that is also really interesting to me. I don't know, maybe this is just my, like, biblical scholar nerd coming out. But there's this phenomenon where people get it in their heads that we need to, like, rebuild the ark. And so they spend a lot of time and money on these kinds of efforts. There's a guy in Holland who had a dream in 1992 that he was supposed to build an ark. And so he built a replica, and he finished it like two or three years ago. He actually built a full-size replica to the best of his knowledge based on the specifications in Genesis chapter 6. It's actually like really cool looking, right? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. This guy built this all by himself. There's a museum in Kentucky. But I don't know why they wanted to do this, but they are building an ark as well in the middle of Kentucky, pouring a lot of time and money into that effort. Now, what all of this says to me, jokes and laughter aside, is that for whatever reason, the story persists in our cultural imagination, but we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to make of the story. Because when you really think about it, this is a very disturbing story. And so since we don't know what to make of it, we focus on the boat, we turn it into a cute kid story, we turn it into a comedy movie. What is that, Evan Almighty? Yeah. Or we turn it into a commentary on the environment, the most recent Noah film. We don't know what to do with this story. So that's kind of our question for this morning, is what do we make of this story about Noah and a big old boat and animals and this flood? Now, before we get into the actual text, I want to address something here real fast. There's a number of different approaches that people will take to a story like this in Scripture, whether it's the story of the flood or a story like Jonah, this man getting swallowed by a whale. There's a couple different ways people tend to respond to these stories. The first is what I would call a pre-rational response. Pre-rational response basically goes like this. It's in the Bible. God said it. I'm good. No questions asked. Now, there's something beautiful about that at one level, right? This sort of simple accepting faith. But I think there's a big danger here, particularly with this kind of a story. Because what it does is it reduces the story to sort of trying to prove that this thing is true. And it actually reflects a faith that is too small. Because we can't see beyond the literal. God can get sort of lost in the truth and the need to be right and the need to explain how God works. But there's a capital T truth about the bigness and the mystery and the justice and the grace of God that is really difficult to explain. That can't be explained away in an easy answer that gets missed in this literal pre-rational reading of the story. This is how we end up with arc replicas and cute morality stories. Now, on the total other end of the spectrum is what I would call rational, or maybe even it's better to say a hyper-rational response that says something like this. Uh, No, 
this could never happen. This did not happen. This is not how the world works. There's no scientific evidence for a flood. This story messes with the things that we know about genetics. This is a silly story, and you have to be a silly person to buy something like this. So again, there's a little bit of a good impulse here, right? We want to question and wrestle with the text, but there's a danger here as well. And it's sort of the same danger in many ways. In this view, the world becomes this closed system that leaves no room for the odd, the weird, the unexplainable, the unexpected. I don't know about you, but my experience of the world is that it is kind of weird and odd and unexplainable and unpredictable. So either end of the spectrum, there's a sort of faith and there's a sort of doubt that make our world way too small. Now there's another option that I would argue, and this is a worldview that is okay with a big God and is okay with some mystery in the universe. This is what we might call a transrational view of the world, a non-dualistic worldview that lives in the tension between faith and doubt. Now, I think there's a gift that these stories have for us, a gift in that it confronts us, confronts those of us who want Noah to be this nice story about our crazy old uncle out in the desert with cute animals, story about, hey, if you're just a good person, you do what God asks, like, good things will happen. It also confronts those of us who want and demand an answer for everything. But again, God is too big, the universe too odd to be explained away, simply. And if you really think about that statement for a minute, it's a little scary, right? And yet at the same time, it can be incredibly freeing. Ultimately, this is a story that confronts our need for control. And so the real question for us this morning is, can we live in the tension that a story like this creates? Can we live in the tension that a story like this creates? Now, one other way that we do a disservice to the flood story is that we forget about the bigger context. The big picture of this story is obviously scripture, but more specifically the book of Genesis. And this will be a little bit of review if you've been around for this series. But so far we've seen that the book of Genesis is written for the people of Israel, this group of people who had been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And so this is an identity-forming book, reminding them who they are, why they are here, and maybe most importantly, it's a book reminding them of who their God is, this God, Yahweh, who had rescued them from slavery. Who is he? What is he all about? What is he like? Now, far too often, the Noah story, the flood story, is sort of treated on its own. It's kind of treated as a standalone story. But again, it's part of this bigger Genesis identity-forming context. And even more specifically, it comes right in the middle, and it actually takes up the most space in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, what scholars typically call prehistory. Okay, there's a very critical shift in the book of Genesis that comes in chapter 12, and when we get there, we'll cover that in more detail, but for now, I just want to say a few things about this. These prehistory stories are not written the same way that history is written in other places in the Old Testament. These are big, cosmic stories that are about all of humanity and give us a really deep insight into who God is. But we cannot read them the way that we read other historical accounts, like 
say the account of David, or not too long ago we were in the book of Esther. Those are different kinds of historical accounts. Now the way the first 11 chapters unfold, it goes like this. Again, a little bit of review for us. The first two chapters tell us about creation, how God created the world, how God brought order from chaos, and about how God looks at his creation and calls it good. And we've spent quite a bit of time talking about what that means. We've seen that goodness is wrapped up in the biblical idea of shalom. Shalom is this harmonious existence of right relationships in multiple directions with God, with other human beings, with the rest of creation. We've seen there's a hierarchy to shalom, God, and then humanity, and then the rest of creation. That's how God intended the world to be, in this interconnected web of right relationship. Now, beginning in chapter 3, again, a little bit of review, we see the unraveling of shalom, Adam and Eve reject God, turn their back on God, overturn the right ordering of things, and this leads to broken relationships with God, with each other, with the rest of creation. And there's a pattern to that story that's repeated in each of the next three stories that we see in this prehistory, one of which, of course, is the flood story. So, to summarize it all, we see God creating order for flourishing and relationship, and then we see sin working against that order pulling us away from flourishing and it raises the question there's this really big question hanging over these first 11 chapters of Genesis and it's this what is God going to do about it what is God's response to this will order win the day or not what will God do about the sin problem so here we go chapter 6 you still have your Bible open look at verse 5 with me The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So here we see that sin just introduced not two, three chapters ago, is now wildly out of control. If you read down in the text, you get to verse 11 and you see this. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. The earth was filled with violence. This is the total breakdown of shalom, of flourishing. And that word violence should bring you back to last week's story, the Cain and Abel story, where Cain murders his brother. We saw how God confronted Cain about the anger that he was harboring, about how God challenged Cain to rule over the sin that was crouching at his door, but Cain could not do it. It overtook him. It ruled him, and that unleashed violence, not only in Cain's family and Cain's life but through all of humanity and it just keeps getting worse and worse as you read through chapters four and chapter five there's more and more killing and there's a little footnote in there I believe it's at the end of chapter four where it says man discovered iron and bronze and it's again sort of a throwaway verse but it's a huge part of the story because in iron and bronze, human beings discovered the raw materials needed to create more efficient killing technologies. 
And so then by the time you get to chapter 6, violence has just become widespread. Look at the language the text used to describe humanity's condition. Wickedness, evil, corruption, violence, and then words like great and continually to describe the evil. So again, the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin that originated in the garden, has now rippled beyond the personal to all of humanity. Total corruption, vast corporate evil, unrelenting, efficient violence. Now, God looks at all this and he's miffed. He's disappointed. He's frustrated. Probably all of those things. But what does the text say? He's grieved. He is heartbroken. It's very, very important that we sit with this for a moment. It's easy to read the flood story and see this as an act of a capricious, angry God. But again, listen to the language the text uses. God had regret. God was sorry about what he had made, about what he had once looked on with pleasure and had called good. God grieved the violence, and the corruption. Now, there are some schools of theology that are a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of an emotional God that sort of want to cast God as this unchanging, immovable, unemotional force. And there's actually some truth to that. There's some good things in that view because God is not fickle the way that other gods are fickle. We've seen throughout our study in the book of Genesis, how these early chapters interact with other stories, other cultures in the ancient Near East told. Every single group of people in the ancient Near East had a flood story. It's the one story that appears in almost every other cultural story of the time. The Gilgamesh epic in particular gives us some insight here. In that story, the gods flood the earth to wipe out humanity because they're not happy with how humanity is populating the earth, okay? And what's going on there is as humanity grows in numbers, they're getting louder and they're getting rowdy and they're disrupting the gods' naps. (laughs) And so they flood the earth so they can protect their nap time. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not peeved that his naps are getting interrupted. He is deeply, deeply grieved. That his beloved creation, his icons, his image bearers are using iron and bronze weapons to kill each other. His heart is broken because he is a deeply relational being. Relationship is why he created in the first place. But this vandalism of shalom, of the good, well-ordered world that he made is so profound, the rejection of him is so complete, he now regrets having taken on this project in the first place. Do you feel his pain? Do you feel God's pain? And again, note, the source of God's pain, his regret, his brokenheartedness is what? It is violence. It is the violence that has overtaken the world. We talked about violence last Sunday. We said that violence is the physical manifestation of our anger and disappointment with God. Anger and disappointment are relational terms. 
They speak to the broken relationship that human beings now have with God. And where there is widespread violence, there is a widespread rejection of God and his shalom. Of all the ways that sin manifests itself in the world, violence is most grieving to God's heart. When we destroy each other, God is certainly not pleased. He's definitely not indifferent. His heart is broken. I cannot say this more clearly. God grieves. But he also responds. Verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. It's pretty gnarly, right? But again, that is how out of hand things had gotten, how deeply grieved God was at the situation he saw on the earth. Now, the last three stories that we looked at all follow a similar pattern. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and now Noah and the flood. There's a sin of rejection of relationship. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Cain kills his brother, gives in to his anger. Violence overtakes the earth. Then there's a consequence. Adam and Eve banished from the garden. Cain forced to be a wanderer and a fugitive. And then, of course, the flood here in today's story. But then, in each story, there is a grace. And we saw in the Adam and Eve story how God covers Adam and Eve. He gives them a better cover. Remember, they try to cover themselves, but it's inadequate. God covers them. Similarly with Cain, God marks Cain, sets him apart so that he will be protected from violence. And then in today's story, the grace is sort of woven in all throughout the story, but the first way that we see grace revealed here is in the choosing of Noah. God will not actually destroy the whole world. This is more of a reboot. He will preserve a remnant. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So it says Noah was righteous, which means that he lived to the best of his ability, in right relationship with God. He walked with God. He was blameless in his generation. Now, that's sort of a relative term, right? It's kind of like being the best player on the worst team. (laughs) We don't get a whole lot more than that, but I think it's safe to conclude, based on what we have seen so far, that in some way, Noah was able to maintain relationship with God and opt out of the culture of violence that had overtaken the world, that was certainly swirling all around him. Now, it's easy to kind of look at that and go, oh, wow, Noah's this amazing guy. But if you read through the whole Noah story, you'll see that he makes some pretty significant mistakes. So there's a sense in which we should honor Noah, but this is really about God's choice. God picks Noah. That is part of the grace in the story. Righteousness doesn't equate to perfection. Noah doesn't earn this. Noah doesn't save himself from the flood. God chooses him. And Noah, to his credit, responds in obedience. This is kind of pulling together a couple different verses from the story, but here's what we see. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Now, what did God ask him to do? Well, this is where the boat comes into play, okay? God asked him to build this gigantic boat. Chapter 6 describes this massive undertaking. 
and reveals that the boat is going to be for Noah's family, but also for animals who will all be a part of repopulating the earth once the flood is over. So Noah does it. He builds this boat, probably faces a lot of ridicule and mocking. But he follows through, and then God asks him to get on the boat. The rain starts, rains for 40 days, and then they get to cruise around for 150 days after that, waiting for the waters to recede. This is usually where pastors make jokes about how stinky it must have been on the boat. I'm not going to do that. Or did I? <laughs> Finally, the water recedes, the boat lands, and Noah is back on land. And look at what he does, the first thing that he does. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. His first act, to have a barbecue. <laughs> No, his first act is to worship, to worship, to recognize the grace and the gift of preservation. Here's how the story ends. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. If you've been around for this series, you should hear, notice a lot of similar language to what we've seen before. There's this language of blessing. Huge theme all throughout the book of Genesis. There's the language of be fruitful and multiply. We didn't read this verse, but Genesis 9-6 restates that God has created humanity in his image. So there's all these repeats of stuff that we've seen before, but there is one very important new thing that is introduced at this point in the story. This is the first time we see the word covenant in the book of Genesis. Throughout the rest of the book and really throughout all of the Old Testament, God will make covenants with people. The Hebrew word for covenant is beret. A beret, a covenant, was a contractual partnership between two parties. They were usually made to settle a dispute or a disagreement. It was almost like a treaty. Now, you could read this story in that way. Man blew it, they paid the price, and now man and God are making their peace. They're making a covenant. Look at those verses again, though, from chapter 9. The unusual thing about covenants in Scripture is that they are way more, way more about what God is going to do, about what God is promising, than about what humans will do. This covenant is not meeting halfway or finding a suitable middle ground. This covenant is all about what God will do, or not do for that matter, in the future. God places all of the responsibility to fulfill this covenant on himself. It is all on him. And the sign, the bow in the sky, again, we sort of cutify this, but think about this for a minute. What is God doing here? God is laying his weapon down. In the flood, God used chaos to overcome chaos, but the real point of this story is that God decides, I will never do this again. God vows to not do violence towards his creation ever again. God, 
in making this covenant, commits himself to the very people who had turned their back on him and who will do it again. And he says, I will be with you. I will be for you. I will preserve you. Even though you will not be faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. In the New Testament, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The arc of the story of Scripture bends back towards Eden, bends back towards Shalom, this restoration, redemption, rebuilding of Shalom. The good news of Scripture, the amazing, radical, scandalous news about Jesus is that God is moving the story in that direction, not by fighting evil with evil, not by overcoming chaos with more chaos, but by absorbing it all. Yes, there are deadly consequences for sin. But God takes those consequences on himself. On the cross, Jesus takes it on himself. All of the chaos, all the violence, all the sin of the world and fulfills this covenant promise to preserve us. So yes, the wages of sin is death. We see that very dramatically in today's story. But the flood story is a significant turning point in God's interaction with humans. No more reboots. Instead, God will pay the price. God will bear the brunt of it. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We can never keep our end of a covenant with God, but God keeps his so that we can be a part of his family Again, this flood story is difficult. It raises all kinds of questions. If we allow it to, it confronts us in many different ways. But ultimately, ultimately it confronts us with God's faithfulness. God keeps his promises. In Lamentations, we read, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning Great is your faithfulness. That's not just a nice verse that you put on a placard in your bathroom. Look at the title. The book of Lamentations. This verse is born out of unspeakable, horrible tragedy. And the author Jeremiah says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness question for us this morning is do you trust God's faithfulness do you trust God to keep up his end of the bargain what does it look like in your life right now whatever you are going through what does it look like to trust God and his faithfulness in the middle of whatever it is that you are going through